Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and the CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the short list of communication skills every leader needs, and I am delighted to welcome back Jonathan Wrights as our esteemed speaker. Today's interview is part of the WBEX interview series brought to you by WBEX, the World Business and Executive Coaching Summit, which is now part of Coaching.com. So Jonathan, can you tell our listeners briefly about yourself? And then I want to jump into the very important conversation about how is communication changing now that many of us are remote? Yeah, I appreciate that, Maureen. Excited to be here again. I, I am an executive coach. I like to think of myself as a leadership ally because I'm the guy that comes alongside of a lot of leaders in a lot of different situations to help them solve problems, gain clarity on what's going on around them, and then in the process, probably learn about themselves and their capabilities as a leader, as a productive leader, making a difference not only in their own life, but in their company's lives and in the lives of the people that follow. And I do that through coaching skills. Now, this whole communication conversation is an interesting one, at least for me, because my first career was as a radio and television news anchor. And so communication and some of those kinds of components have been front and center for my career the entire time, you know, since the late 1980s, <laughs> pushing communication to the center of what happens day in, day out, I think is a huge challenge for leaders across the board. It's a really important point. As we think about all of the things leaders do, communication is the vehicle through which they do it. So I set a vision, I have to communicate it. I change our strategy or I co-create something all of that happens through the vehicle of communication. And I think we occasionally underestimate how important communication is because we've seen people who are cognitively brilliant who don't meet their potential because they weren't as effective at communicating. We all can think of in the course of our careers that person who we knew could crack the code intellectually. No matter how complex, no matter how involved the problem, we knew they could figure it out. Communicating to someone else about what they did to solve that problem is a completely different question. There's a difference between having firepower upstairs and being able to pass that firepower on, share that firepower, share the results of that firepower with the people around you. And that's where communication comes front and center of a leadership challenge. I genuinely think we are on the verge of a communication crisis. If you think about what we see in, well, let's use media as an example. Everything is one way. Everything is, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Here's what I think. And there's very little ability to go back and forth. This is one of the things that, that I'll just point out a trend that I'm noticing in Twitter, which, you know, I don't, I don't love Twitter. I'm mostly entertained by Twitter. I don't use it for business purposes or anything substantive, but there's a really interesting change happening in the Twitterverse over the last year. And that is it's becoming more about conversation. It used to be about wisecracks. It used to be about funny or insightful comments that people would put out to their followers. Now it's about engaging conversation on a much deeper level, a much more interesting level than previously, because it's about people going back and forth around an idea. And it might be something as silly as, 
you know, should Baker Mayfield be the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns? Or, you know, what are the deeper implications of foreign policy in this specific niche market? There's conversation about both of those things 24-7 on Twitter, and that didn't used to be the case. It used to be who could slap the funniest meme up there or who could make the best wisecrack. Interesting, because doing the podcasts, one of the things I'm searching for is a way to engage our listeners more deeply. We have numbers. We're in the top one and a half percent of business podcasts, which is shocking because aside from a handful of comments I get on LinkedIn, which I love, right? I don't know if somebody's just put my podcast on replay perpetually so that we get listens. Let us hope not. But the lack of interaction is curious. That's one of the things I think is a real opportunity for us as leaders. I think the skill of inviting interaction is something that we're rediscovering. I'll give you a great example. I think back to one of the very first news stories I covered. This was probably 1987, before there was the internet, before there were cell phones, before there was Twitter, all of those kinds of things. I remember watching Lee Iacocca. He was no longer connected to the auto world anymore. He was exploring what his collected career influence might make possible. I don't remember this specifically, but I think he might've been kicking the tires on a run for office. And he did this speech and then finished early, which, you know, for someone of a high profile like that, you're more worried about them running over than you are finishing early. And he finished early and then took questions. Just said, we've got a few extra minutes. What should we talk about? Or what might I have said that caused you to be a little uncomfortable? And people actually engaged him. Now, if that were to happen, I think that would be a huge risk to do in 2022 because the immediate reaction that we've culturally embraced is to say, here's why I think you're wrong, or here are all the problems I have with what you said. Whereas 35 years ago, the orientation was much more about, let's see if we can help each other understand more deeply or differently, as opposed to, hey, let me just correct the crazy things you just said, which is too often what we encounter in conversation back and forth, leader to potential person following. That understanding of, hey, is there an opportunity to deepen what we're talking about is something we've really missed. We human beings, I'm not saying we, you and me, Maureen, but we human beings were so oriented to point out the flaws in other people's thinking. And somehow that's become okay in today's society. We used to write exclusively about leadership and now we're writing about leadership and followership. Mm -hmm. So as the leader, I used to think about setting vision and all the big leaderly things. I didn't think as much about my followers and we certainly didn't teach followers to be good followers mm. and frankly leaders to be good followers like there are a whole bunch of times when my team tells me what to do because they should mm -hmm. right they're just stuff i shouldn't lead even though my title is ceo mm -hmm. and the perception that we've cultivated is that me as the leader i'm supposed to have the answers and i've trained people around me to think i have the answers and it's been interesting in working over the years with our design firm and people like that who occasionally will let me do something stupid because they don't hear that I've invited them to really don't let me do anything stupid. Just because I said something, I'm just trying to set the direction best I know 
but I'm paying you experts to make sure that my original ideas are built on, not built. Isn't that interesting how difficult that deepening conversation has become to get into? I'm not sure what it is. I wish I could point to a cultural trend or some kind of indication where that came from, but it's become much more difficult to get into a conversation that deepens understanding and probably improves the outcome, the product, the tool that you're working on. It's become much more difficult to have that kind of conversation that, like you said, keeps you from doing something that you wish you hadn't as opposed to, well, you know, she's the boss. I can't tell her she's wrong, which is my preferred communication style. It's very interesting to me how the on-ramp to those conversations, we blow past it way too often. I understand where someone like my design firm or a firm that I'm contracting, probably they work with more people who tell them what to do than ask them how to do things. My team hopefully they recognize how important they are. But as we onboard each new person, we go back and forth to the point that you're making. It's now not common. So when I say, correct me when I do something that's silly, it takes a few cycles before people recognize that, you know, really, I don't like to look stupid in public. Mm -hmm. So if I do something that is suboptimal, point it out so I don't do that same thing yet again. Even to the point that the line, correct me if I'm wrong, has become a bit of a cliche. When someone says that to you, just be honest, gut instinct, immediate flash response. Do they actually want you to correct them if they're wrong? I don't think so anymore. Depends on who it is. Fair enough, fair enough. I think that's become a cliche kind of familiar statement that we're more comfortable just blowing past then we are actually acting on it. Now, I heard a leader say three times in the course of a conversation. First time they said, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. Nobody said anything. Three separate times after that, they said, all right, now I want you to hold me accountable for what I'm trying to say. And his team jumped in all three of those times and said, I'm not sure that's what we discussed. Or this is what I think you're saying. Is that really what you mean in that situation? I thought that was really interesting that the change in verbiage caused a different response from the people on this guy's team. These were people well down the org chart from this guy. This is the CEO of the organization. And I went to one of the underlings later on and said, hey, uh, was that different for you? And he said, well, truthfully, I don't even remember him saying, correct me if I'm wrong. I said, oh, isn't that interesting? He goes, yeah, yeah, people say that all the time and nobody ever means it. But when he says, hold me accountable, he's actually asking for a specific action on my part. And I kind of feel like I owe it to him to provide that if he's going to ask me for it. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting just the slight change in wording changes our mindset from, to your point, the cliches. Yeah. Like the, to be honest, that just makes me think you've been lying to me every other time. That's the first of the short list of communication skills I would suggest every leader needs which is an authentic voice. As I think back on that, and I've been in meetings with this specific leader a handful of times, it is clear to me that he chooses the vocabulary he uses very carefully mm -hmm. to tailor first and foremost who he is, and secondly, to match the audience. I'll give you an example from my own life here. I live in the last suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. When you're driving out of town on I-71 coming out of Cleveland, Ohio, 
I live in the absolute last suburb before the end of the earth comes. What is that? Uh, I live in Medina, Ohio. So you drive out of Cleveland, you pass Medina, you go through a less populated area, which I lovingly refer to as the end of the earth because my in-laws live on the other side of the less populated area. And at the end of the less populated area, you get to Columbus, even though we're the last suburb. It's basically a rural community. I am a city boy. I grew up on the east side of Cleveland. I lived in the city. When I listen to the people in my neighborhood speak, their vocabulary, their language choices are very different than mine because of where they grew up, because of where they're from, because of, you know, maybe it's what the things they value, et cetera. And I realized that I was doing them a disservice by not communicating authentically to me because they could tell Mm. that I wasn't being me. My next door neighbor, Dave, who's a real estate agent and an incredible salesperson, probably a pretty good leader, although I don't know this about him. I know he's an incredible salesperson. He flat out said to me, I always wonder if you're trying to fit in around here rather than just being who you are. I said, tell me about that. What does that mean? He goes, well, I've heard you talk like people in, there's a couple of key phrases and I won't go into what they are because they won't mean anything to anybody. But there's a couple of key phrases that this town uses that I have tried to use that just sound funny coming out of my mouth. My next door neighbor called me on it. I said, you probably shouldn't do that because it makes you less believable, less approachable, people less willing to connect with you. Just be who you are. And I said, okay, I'm going to test that. So for the last year or so, I've been testing this. I've been just being, you know, talking like a guy from Cleveland instead of a guy from Medina. 30 miles apart, there is actually a difference. I know it sounds funny, but it's true. There is actually a difference. And I've been communicating that way, authentic to who I am. And it's amazing that I'm understood more clearly and more completely just by giving myself permission to be who I am. I'm going to go to an extreme because it's so in the conversation right now. Okay. We hear people who are saying, I'm going to be who I am. And that's mean spirited and hateful and all the things that are less civil in our world. Mm. And I know you're not saying that. I'm not. I want you to clarify just so our listeners hear, because occasionally I hear things about, well, I'm just going to be who I am. And then the spewing begins And I know you're not telling leaders to be obnoxious. I am not. And I appreciate you saying that. Now, I do think there's a deeper conversation about being who you actually are. And this is probably a really good extension to the first item on the short list of communication skills that every leader needs, you know, finding that authentic voice. Your authentic voice comes from how you're wired, how you're put together. The social scientist in me is a little bit out of the norm on this because I think this is 80 to 90% natural born and only 10 to 20% nurtured. I do think you can change it, but it's hard to leave your natural wiring completely behind. So the things that come from natural wiring typically are good for you, your own self-interest, but they're also good for the health, well-being of the people around you. It's a both and. That's different than the part of you, the part of your authentic voice that comes from your wounds, your wounding, your deeply held hurts. The things that come from your deeply held hurts, usually you believe are good for you. And you've convinced yourself they're also good for other people. But one or both of those things is not actually true. Too often when the spewing happens, it's rooted in a wound as opposed to a wiring. 
And so that takes really high level self-awareness to be able to speak to, am I speaking from a wounding or am I speaking from my wiring? And one of the best ways to tell that is to objectively say, is this actually good for everyone, for me and for the people around me? I think that's an easier conversation than, than we often think it is, to objectively decide, is this actually good for everyone? It's interesting. I'm going to take the risk of bringing up something politically charged, not to bring in politics. Oh, here we go. Well, but to illustrate. So I grew up in a military family. Okay. And so during the Black Lives Matter protests, the issue of taking down statues of Civil War generals came up. And we've got two competing perspectives. So my family would say, those are generals who exhibited exceptional military prowess, and we should honor them because of their skill. So it would be a disservice to take them down. And yet I saw them grapple with the other point of view that was somebody feels threatened or less than or fill in the blank because of that. And how do we navigate it? It's interesting that one could take the perspective of either side and say it's good for all. And so again, a level of inquiry and awareness, I think you're brilliantly pointing out, these aren't necessarily evident when we start the conversation. Right. One of the exercises we used to do when I was a journalist was in story meetings or in editorial conversations, we used to say, okay, what are the facts of this particular story? There is this statue. It honors this particular historical figure, this particular historical figure, using the Civil War generals as the example, had success in these X number of battles during these years. Those are facts. It's hard to argue with those. Mm -hmm. It's the perspective that comes after the facts are agreed upon that becomes challenging. And that wiring or wounding question, I think informs perspective. Now, I have some thoughts about things that are going on in the world today. I'll use a non-American example. In the neighborhood here in Medina where we live, there are a number of families that have adopted Ukrainian children in the last 18 months. Long before the conflict in the Ukraine started, just so happens that there's a number of families that have these Ukrainian children. They're all 15 years old or under, and two years ago, they lived in the Ukraine. Those are the facts. Some of those young people still have family that are in the war zone. That's also a fact. What's going on in Ukraine is open to all kinds of perspective, and that's where the disagreement begins to flare around all of these things. And, you know, these young people, they don't have any idea. They know they're not where they used to be. They know they're here now. They know they're surrounded by people who love them and who are kind to them. That's all those young people care about. It's a wonderful thing. But there is a conversation swirling around caring for these kids about, is it the right thing to be there? What should we be doing in this country to support this? That whole conversation escalates so much more quickly than is helpful because the perspectives vary so widely. And we've really lost, in my opinion, we've really lost the ability to go back and forth with that kind of deepening conversation, even when we think we're being authentic. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to tell my truth. That's a line that raises my eyebrows. I'm just going to tell you my truth. 
Okay, your truth may not be your truth. I mean, we may agree on some facts, but your strongly held perspective may not actually be truth, at least the way I see it, et cetera, like that. We've lost that ability to go back and forth along those lines. So all this to say leaders need the opportunity, need the ability, need the skill to take a charged issue and deepen the conversation, even if it means acknowledging, hey, I'm speaking to you right now from a place of woundedness instead of a place of natural wiring. I've never heard people use that distinction and certainly not in conversation. And I'll use an example of someone I'm coaching right now who is brilliant and incredibly self-aware, a trauma victim. And he is aware that that trauma occasionally informs how he behaves. And some of that is brilliant. He is a person that if I gave him something to do, he would get it done no matter what. If he was hospitalized, he would still get it done. So that has served him incredibly well. And he happens to be also cognitively bright. So he's smart and gets stuff done is a wonderful combination. And yet, to your point, where would you say in a conversation, this is coming from my wounding? Because as a senior executive, those are phrases we don't often hear. I think this is a culture question, in a lot of ways, an organizational culture question, where from the highest levels of the organization, we have the opportunity to make it okay to say, you know what, this is not my best moment because this wounding that I carry with me right now got the better of me. And at the very least, at the very least, the low bar is to say, look, you're not going to be punished when your wounding gets the better of you. Mm. At the very least, that's the lowest bar. One step up from that is to value raising your overall level of self-awareness, learning about those moments where the dark side, the wounded side of you is informing or driving your communication, committing to improve, to acknowledge, to develop the alternate option there, I think is that's a cultural commitment that an organization can make. You want to talk about building a healthier workplace. You want to talk about building a more equitable and inclusive environment. This is a part of it. This is a component of it to be able to say, you know what, I didn't handle that very well because of these three things that I carry with me. Mm -hmm. I flew off the handle at a boss of mine at my last job. I've been running my own thing for about 15 years. But at my last job, I flew off the handle at my boss who all he was doing was inviting me to improve a specific component of my job performance. It was coming from a good place, but because I had some wounding from my family of origin, I put up my dukes. I was ready to go. That's a good thing it was 8.30 in the morning or else I probably would have had him if it was the end of the day and I was tired and frustrated. I probably would have swung and then, you know, nothing good would have come from that. And you're not a guy who hits people, just to clarify. No, I'm not. Not No, I have had 11 broken noses and two broken orbital sockets, but they're all from playing basketball. They're not from fistfights. It's uh, that's a whole nother story. That angry response is very atypical for me. My boss, to his credit, paused and said, I don't think what's happening right now is really who you are or how you want to interact in this situation. What's actually going on? Oh, brilliant question. Yeah, and it was. I didn't realize in the moment, but I realized 10 minutes later what a kind and compassionate question that actually was. And, and I, I remember stammering out to him, can I have a minute and can we start again in a few minutes? Because I think I can talk about this, but not right now. He went, yeah, yeah, no, no problem. And 
he made it okay for me to say, not my best moment. Can I please have a chance to do better? He made it okay. That's to me is the middle bar. A really high bar would be for the organizational culture to celebrate those moments where the person realizes, you know what, I had this pattern, I worked on it. My pattern is now becoming this. How different would organizational culture be if we could have those conversations on an ongoing basis to value some of that vulnerability in a helpful and useful way? I mean, hello, Brene Brown, hello. There'd be a few very practical applications of all of that vulnerability and shame work that Brene Brown did. That would really change organizational communication. When I think of that moment was for you probably pivotal in how you changed, but also how you felt about that person who responded with kindness and grace and compassion, whatever word you want to use, skill, because somebody else could have walked you to HR. Yeah, third most influential male figure in my life after my father and my high school basketball coach. That's how significant that moment was. For people listening, these aren't just four points on a blog post. This is for a leader career changing when we talk about empowerment and all those kinds of things that you would, I'm assuming, have done almost anything within reason for this leader. Yeah. In fact, I followed him. He left the TV station where that happened and went to a different one. And when he left, I said, hey, when you get down there, if you see a spot for me, you know how to get a hold of me. And he did. And I moved. I went. In reality, it was a lateral move for me. It was a big step up for him. It was a lateral move for me, but I wanted to be in that culture and move forward. Not to use that very small sample size as a broad and sweeping pronouncement, but there's one of the solutions or one of the roads forward for what we're calling the great resignation these days. Building those kinds of leadership relationships at the risk of being crass and cold, Maureen, that's a talent attraction and talent development strategy that leaders have to take advantage of, that have to build into their view of what's going on around them. You build those kinds of relationship with the people you're leading, they are likely to follow you into some very interesting places and choose to follow you again, should that opportunity come up. So it matters. I wanna make the distinction there are communication tactics and then things we do because we're different. Fair enough. And my hypothesis is that gentleman communicated that way because of who he is, and that is native to him, and other people would have done something else, back to your authentic piece, that he is likely a more developed person, and it is authentic to him. Here's how far I can go with that, because I bumped into him. Shortly before the pandemic, so flew in a little more years ago. I said to him, you know, I said, Dwayne, I don't know if you remember this back when we were at this station. And he's like, yeah, I got no memory of that. Hmm. I don't remember that happening at all. And what that said to me is this is so completely who he is. That's just how he handled stuff. That wasn't an exceptional occurrence for him. This was how he did things. There was a level of character that he was so clear on and willing to communicate to, speaking about talking from your wiring. Mm -hmm. It just was, hey, it was two o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. That's what I do. And it was not anything bigger than that. And I thought to myself, holy cow. I'm like, well, just so we're clear, Dwayne, uh, you don't have any idea how pivotal that was for me. 
and it completely changed some things that really fit into who I wanted to be as a leader moving forward. And I'm very grateful for that. And he's like, well, whatever I did, you're welcome. <laughs> so I think that speaks to what you're saying here is that when it's deeply a part of who you are, it's not even a conscious thought. It just happens. And that gets to your first point of what is innate or authentic. Mm-hmm that there are people who are innately and authentically assume the best. That's a cliche phrase that many people don't do. Mm-hmm. Assume positive intent and then they go, you know, say awful things. Right. People who are wired that way. I live with someone who's wired that way. I don't think he ever assumes anything bad about people, even when he should. Right. Or even when I believe there is no good intent, either he has worked hard on that or he happened to be, I think, to your point, less trauma, more constructive. Related to all of this, and we'll call this a bonus list to the things that communication skills that every leader needs, is it's important to understand that there's a difference between being generous and being giving. Okay. What's the distinction? I can be giving. I can give something to you and have it be all about me. Yeah. If I'm generous, though, it's not at all about me. It's exclusively about your benefit, your growth, your development. I use that lens in evaluating my own communication pretty regularly. Am I being giving here or am I being actually generous? So giving would be quid pro quo. Yeah, in all likelihood. I think you could argue that throwing out some of this information on this podcast is a bit of a giving transaction because, you know, hey, yeah, we're, we're, we're putting this out to benefit people that are listening, but the value that we are hoping for in return is a polished brand or an improved brand. By the way, it's rights, R-E-I-T-Z, is where you find me just in the spirit of being giving. Really, though, I'm not driven by doing this to have people search for me on Google more often. I really want people to communicate better because I think that's one of the things that makes the world better. Now, I realize how woo-woo that sounds and I realize, you know, that that's lofty and a little potentially a little bit Pollyanna and those kinds of things. But I really do believe that. I really do believe that better communication and a generous mindset make the world a better place, which comes to life in better organizations, in better leaders, in better relationships and higher productivity and better rest at the end of the day because you feel good about what you accomplished throughout the course of the, the daylight hours that you had available to you. It results in better socializing. It results in a more meaningful career, a more meaningful life in general. It helps you raise your kids better. All of those things are tied to better communication and a generous mindset. And I would say for us, it is very similar. Yes, all the things that gets our name out there, and that is helpful. The amount of time and energy and money invested, I don't know that that equation works. But what I would say is we live in a world where we require better leadership. And there are a lot of people who lead things and lead people who can't afford even one of my books. I spent some time in Africa and I I was saying, you know, just buy these books. And the gentleman I was talking to said, how much are they? And one of my books, even without shipping, is equal to his monthly income. Mm. There were people who can't go buy a book, but many have access to the internet at a library 
and they listen to podcasts and this was a way and the way I'm choosing to give back. You know, I volunteered handing out little hamburgers at art shows and Mm -hmm. all the things we do to raise money for other people's causes. This is mine. It is all about improving the leadership in the world. Love that. In light of that, so far we've covered two big core concepts. Speak authentically from your natural wiring and be generous, meaning not expecting anything in return. Give to develop, to benefit, to sharpen the other person and not because of what you're looking for in return. Truthfully, Maureen, if we don't cover anything else on this podcast, we only cover those two big ideas. I will challenge anyone who's listening to not find some way to make their life and by extension the world around them better using one or both of those ideas. Let's go to the third one though, because we can. Okay. This one really has come to mind. This fits in the spirit of what we're talking about, but this has really come to mind because of work from home. Talking on Zoom meetings all day, every day, or your platform of choice has changed the way we communicate at least a little bit. There's two specific examples I want to give of this. Number one is our word economy matters now in ways that it never has. Now, when I say word economy, I mean packing as much content, as much information, as much communication into your message as you possibly can in as few a words as possible. This one's hard for me because even after all the years of broadcasting, all the years of coaching, I still wonder why I would use 100 words when 10,000 will do. It is not something that comes to me naturally. It's a skill I've had to learn. But consistently seeing if you can say what you have to say shorter will make you a better communicator. Being more efficient, being more targeted will make you more effective. And nowhere is that more apparent than in a Zoom meeting or in an online platform like this. So I'm going to challenge, if you're listening now, the next Zoom meeting you're in that's recorded, go back and watch the recording and write down every word you say. Only you, because you're the only one who can do anything about this. But write down every word you say. And in fact, go old school on it. Use a pen and a piece of paper. Now, back in the old days, we used to have these things called pens, where we we would make marks on paper, which was this substance that we had. And go back then, after you're done, after you've watched the meeting, and edit what you had to say so it's half as long. Try to communicate everything that you had to say, but say it in half as many words. See how that feels. Then take the edited version and edit it again. So it's even a little shorter. Then take the second edited version and edit it one more time. So it's yet even still shorter than it was. So three edits after you write down by hand what you said in the course of that meeting. Now here's what that's going to do for you. That's going to nudge your brain to rewire itself into different word choices. It's going to keep you focused on identifying the idea that you want to communicate in your head and pushing it out of your mouth as efficiently and effectively as you possibly can. Word economy, it's not brevity, because brevity just means say it short. It's word economy. It means say meaningful, impactful things as efficiently as you can. 
unlike what I'm doing right now, work on that skill on an ongoing basis. Now, I would love to hear from, in fact, on the comments of this podcast, stop this podcast right now, go do this on a Zoom meeting, and then put a comment under this podcast about exactly what the experience was like. And here's my prediction for what you're going to say. That was agony. Oh my gosh, I hate that guy. I never want to hear him again on this podcast ever again, no matter what. That was awful, but it changed everything. I'm completely thinking differently about how I'm going to communicate moving forward. Now, the bad news about this process is, yes, it's awful. It's agony to do it. The good news about this process is you only have to do it two or three times and you'll be a different communicator for the rest of your life. Interesting. It is so documentable that going through this process rewires how you choose the words you speak to. It's all about axons and dendrites and the various connections between the neural pathways in our brains. You rewire those so dramatically. That's why you got to do it by hand especially in today's day and age where we don't write very often anymore. If you do it by hand on paper, the various learning systems that go on in your mind and in your body work together to accelerate this process. It doesn't work the same on a keyboard. Do it by hand, you'll be glad you did. So word economy is the third skill that effective leaders who want to be effective communicators need to master. So I will say I have not done what you're talking about, but now I don't write anything without Grammarly. Everything goes through Grammarly. Yep. And to your point, the bad habits like some passive voice. I hear myself rewording things now in my head and how they come out are different and more concise because I've had to edit myself so much. You know, I'm thinking, I'm writing just like I would be thinking and speaking. And it's astounding how much I have to edit. Grammarly is a great tool. I use it as well. It informs absolutely everything that I do. Because like I say, I don't believe in using 100 words when I could use 10,000. You know, it's a problem. Grammarly changes your thinking in the moment on the fly. And it's really, really good at keeping that front and center for you. It's not the process you gave, though. It's not sufficient. Grammarly and the process I just described is kind of a dream combination because it takes multiple learning styles. It engages multiple regions of your brain. It gives you multiple lenses on the same challenge. And the, the legal pad and the pen with your Zoom meeting mm -hmm. is a deep dive. It's an immersion. You jump into the deep end of the pool. Grammarly is sitting on the edge of the pool with your feet in the water constantly being reminded of how awesome it is in the pool. And we really need both to consistently improve. And Grammarly is not the only tool. It's just, in, in my opinion, shameless plug. Yeah. You know, no endorsement here. Grammarly is the best tool for this approach because I've tried them all. It's front and center and integrates beautifully with lots of different things. You should use Grammarly. Yeah. Pairing Grammarly with the occasional assessment of your own editing. I do, I do this about once a month. Really? Specifically with my coaching, specifically with my coaching, because that, those are my meetings. Those are where word economy for me matters the most. I will not be doing that on this podcast because uh, you've given me some room to uh, talk through some of these things. And a little bit of this is stream of consciousness. A little bit of this is, is, is how it goes. That's what a conversation is though. The point is to throw some things out there for consideration so that you can move forward. But when you're in your focused meeting time, you know, you, you're, 
I tend to think of it as highest risk, highest pressure environment. And when you're on your biggest stage, which for me is coaching, that's where I use this tool because that's where word economy matters the most. That's where most is at stake and most is potentially able to be gained. And that's a great lens to think about, hey, I wanna make sure I'm making the most of my communication opportunities moving forward. Beautiful, I love that. And I wanna to go to number four before the clock runs out. All right, number four, there is a difference between being frank and being diplomatic. I learned this through a behavioral assessment called the Harrison because I noticed in a bunch of communication styles, when you Google communication styles, you get like 3.5 billion results. It's shocking how many communication skills for leadership gives you like 3.5 billion results. And I noticed that in a number of communication assessments, they put a continuum out there and at the one end is frank and at the other end is diplomatic. And you are challenged to plot your communication style somewhere on this continuum. Well, a social scientist that I've crossed paths with, a guy named Dan Harrison, Dr. Dan Harrison, noted that those are actually two separate behaviors. They're not opposite ends of the same continuum. They're two separate behaviors. I was listening to him speak one time and he said, I bet you can think of a situation in the last day where you had to be frank one moment and diplomatic the next in the same conversation. And I bet for a bunch of you, it was within the same paragraph. And I went, crap, that's right. Speaking of being frank, uh, I went, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. It's not an either or, it's a both hand. I'm going to test for understanding then. Okay. So I have to give someone some frank and maybe challenging feedback you did this and the impact was it upset me for whatever reason. I can still do that in a way that is kind. Back to your example of, of the boss who was so good. Yes. Hey, that's probably not what you intended. Would you like to do it over? Right, right. You can be straight and to the point, which is what Frank is. And you can be tactful, thoughtful, and caring, which is what diplomatic is. Those are not opposite ends of the same spectrum. Those are different behaviors that have to work together. And I would suggest, based on hearing Dr. Dan Harrison, communication for leaders is built on the interaction of those two behavioral tendencies. So there are times when you need to just get to the point and be as straight and dead at it as you possibly can be. I'm sorry this isn't working out. We're going to eliminate your position. Human resources will talk to you about the severance package. Thank you for your work. I'm done. I just let somebody go. Nobody wants to do that. But when you do, you have to be straight and to the point. Now, tactful, thoughtful, and caring or diplomatic, there are many other situations like, like the example that, that I gave that Dwayne did with me saying, hey, I don't think that landed quite the way you thought it did or wanted it to, or maybe you didn't have a, a plan for how that was going to land. You just wanted to say it, which was more the case. What value would there be in trying that again? And, you know, that, that was a thoughtful, tactful and caring kind of approach. 
I'm thinking about a, about a situation where a scientist friend of mine presented the facts of a discovery that he made to a very heavily invested donor group that had a perspective attached to why they were funding this scientist's work. And the scientist's conclusion really didn't support their hope for perspective. But the donor group saw a connection that the scientist, I would say, was uncomfortable with, but not completely ready to refute. I think that's a fair way to say it. He said, in a very thoughtful diplomatic response, he said, I can see why your thought pattern took you to that place. And just left it at that. Didn't continue with, and here's why you're wrong. Although knowing him, I'm sure he was thinking that. But he just thoughtfully, carefully, and tactfully said, I can see how you would arrive at that conclusion, which was enough for that situation. And they continued to work together as a result of it. So separating frankness from being diplomatic is a critical challenge for us as communicators. This takes us back to where we started with the authenticity that authentic and diplomatic have to be married together. It has to be an and. Hmm. 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 You know, let's go there. Cause I, I, I think authentic from wiring. Mm. Okay. Is often married to frankness and quite honestly, probably should be authentic from wounding requires being diplomatic. Beautiful. That's a fresh connection for me from this conversation. So, you know, in this conversation, I think uh, I've not ever said it quite that same way before, but that's also a listening lens for us in terms of communication. You can often tell instinctively know, hey, this person is being authentic from their natural wiring. Let's encourage them to go even more at it, even more directly at it. Secondarily, you can also tell when someone is being authentic because of their wounding. And as a result, we kick in our diplomatic muscle. Interesting. To deepen the conversation. So my partner has an uncanny ability to be able to say directly to people things that nobody else can say. And he seems to have no wounding. I'm not sure how this happens, but mm -hmm. he also adds in things like cupcake. Hey, cupcake, did, was that what you meant to say? So there's there's a little bit of humor. And he, the first time he did this with his board chair, who was the COO of a you know, Fortune 10 company or something, I think people responded with shock. Like nobody calls this guy cupcake, but that just ease in his own skin and then saying, mm -hmm. you think that's going to, you know, whatever he says, but just this beautiful ability to disarm and say what everyone in the room is thinking in a way that doesn't come from wounding. Yeah. It comes from, I want us to be better. And that thing you just said isn't going to make us better. Yes, that's it exactly. You know, 
from from my own standpoint, I, you know, I, I'm I'm loving the idea of him calling his board CEO Cupcake. That that's beautiful. I'm I'm going to carry that away. My tendency is I often diffuse tense situations with borderline inappropriate humor, and it's really not a helpful behavior when it comes from me just being uncomfortable because I'm wounded. If it's coming from a place where the generosity in me sees, you know what, we just need to cut through some of this tension. With 20% less tension, we'll, we'll see this situation very, very differently. I've, I've had thoughts like that in the middle of coaching sessions. If we could just get this to be 20% less tense, this conversation would go a completely different place. And using humor to diffuse the situation in that circumstance is very different than doing it because of my own wounding, I'm squirming. And as a result, avoiding what's happening here. That's a very different set of conversations for us as leaders when we come from that natural wiring place as opposed to the deeply held wounding place. If someone is feeling in themselves, I'm squirming, I'm wounded, how do they shift before speaking? I would suggest a three-phase, three-step approach. Number one is you have to develop some awareness of it and be willing to be aware of it. You know, a lot of times when we get into that uncomfortable place, our, our gut reaction is to just push it back down where it came from. That has awareness, but the follow-up choice, the, you know, what happens next isn't helpful. So the second step is to acknowledge it or even articulate it. I promised myself, now some of what we're describing here comes from the fact that I have a 30 plus year depression history and I've learned about some of this in counseling and fighting through some of these things. So, so some of this level of self-awareness that I bring into the conversation comes from that place. And I decided very early on in that counseling journey that I was going to articulate, again, this is part of why I believe in 10,000 words when 100 will probably do. I committed to articulating, hey, I'm feeling this way or I'm having this reaction. You know, sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, acknowledge or articulate that thing because once it's out in the open, once you've actually added, put some words to that feeling, it's much easier to make a different choice, which is then choose to go to take a different action. So I'll become aware, build awareness of it, acknowledge or articulate it, and then make a different choice. Act differently based on the acknowledgement or the articulation, not based on the feeling that you had in the moment. The middle step is critical. So I wanna give an example of this that actually happened to work for me last week, okay. and sometimes they don't. So I called someone the wrong name. I have such a bad fear of calling people the wrong names because I've called boyfriends the wrong name. It, just people I've known for a decade, I'll call the wrong name. So on our screen is Dan, our producer, and Jonathan, our guest. There will be a point when I will call someone Dan or someone Jonathan, flip the names. And so this is this massive fear. So I'm in a session with somebody, 10 people. I've written down everyone's names to get them right. There's a gentleman at the end of the table named Fred. So I do the, you know, kind of memory tricks of, okay, that's the name of an ex-boyfriend. We go around, I call him Paul. He's like, nope, my name's Fred. And I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I dated two people, one named Fred, one named Paul. I did the little house and put you in the room. 
I put you in the wrong room, Fred. You're in the Paul room. And it became this big joke. Now we've heard about Fred and Paul. And by the end of the day, because there was a longer story about Paul was, let's say, paid his way through school dancing. So now this gentleman named Fred, who's more mature in years, is walking around like he was a stripper at one point. So it it did play out in a way that was really funny. Now, it could have gone really badly, too. Mm-hmm. I could have grossly offended them and never been invited back. I, I mean, I was aware, though. But you were aware of it. Hey, I got this problem. You took the extra step. In this case, it happened to be after misspeaking. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what causes the awareness. You articulated and said, hey, I got this challenge. You know, this is something I'm working on. I dropped the ball on that. I'm going to make a different choice moving forward. And here's how. I'm moving you out of the Fred room and putting you in the Paul room where you belong. And going from there. And you know what? It worked. Yeah. All day long. I bet you never called him Fred again. (laughs) He became Fred Paul. By, By the end of the day, everyone was calling him Fred Paul. So, yeah, it moved it from an embarrassing moment for either me or him into just a bit lighthearted. Yeah, love it. And probably every time I see him going forward, there'll be some joke for a while anyway. So to your point that the humility of instead of just letting it go and beating myself up over it and then calling him the wrong name again because then I felt stupid and my brain wasn't engaging, to just add some levity to a boring leadership conversation too. I think this is where I say, well done, Margaret. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Jonathan, it has been such a delight to have you join us again. And hopefully we do this next year and I will have taken a couple of times to write by hand my Zoom. I don't even listen to these podcasts again because I don't want to hear myself. (laughs) So it will absolutely change the way you communicate and you will curse my name as it's happening. And then about a week later, you'll go, you know what? That actually worked. I'm really glad I did that. And that's the goal. There's so many solid neurological principles happening in the course of using that strategy. You almost can't help but change your communication. So I hope you do it. And I really do want to hear from listeners with comments underneath this podcast episode about what that does for them, even if they're calling me names in the course of uh, the, the effort. So I will do it and I will put notes on the LinkedIn newsletters. Great. Looking forward to it. We can't air it too soon. I need a little bit of time. And then I need to recover from the exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you will. Well, hey, I sure appreciate you having me. This is a pleasure. I really enjoyed our first conversation, but this was a special conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, pushing it out there to the world. Thank you. And me as well. I want to thank our sponsor, WBEX. And I want to thank our listeners. I hope that you are able to put in practice some of the recommendations that Jonathan had because to his point, we all communicate and by doing it well, we will be better human beings in every interaction we have, whether it's on Twitter or with our children and everyone in between. So thank you in advance for making the impact you are making and elevating it using these ideas. Please continue to listen, like, and share our podcasts.